Hi, my name's Golda, and you're listening to It Happened Here, a true crime podcast based in South Africa. Enjoy. Thank you so much to my dear friend Golda Schultz for that intro. And hello, RHHs. Welcome back to another episode of It Happened Here. I'm going to jump right into it with some Patreon thanks. Patrons of the show are the lovely people who point their browsers to patreon.com forward slash it happened here and pledge a small monthly amount like a dollar or three or six to support the show directly. So thanks and a shout out this week go to Tanya Mateis and Chelsea Tucker. Thank you both so, so much for the support, which helps me grow this podcast. If you can't support the show in that way, but you like what I'm putting out into the world, please follow or subscribe on your app and leave us a review or tell a friend. The last bit of admin today is to say that this show naturally, because true crime, involves adult subject matter, including, in this instance, discussion of sexual assault. I also want to say that I first started researching this case about two months ago, and it started off quite simply, but I've since connected with a network of people who know the victim in this case, and I'm learning new things still. So I may well come back to this case in time, but in the meantime, here we go. Today we're traveling to Durban in KwaZulu-Natal. For international listeners, Durban, sometimes called Derbs, Dirtbin, or by the municipal name Etequini, is a coastal city on the east coast of South Africa. It's subtropical, and I know that might not mean anything to you, but it does to my hair. It's Frizz City. It's one of the most populated cities in the country, but it has a very different feel from the other big cities. It's kind of charming in its pace, and only a little frustrating. I was once doing some freelance work for the biggest travel mag in the country, It's the kind of publication that hotels aspire to be featured in. But in Durban, I discovered that if you phone a business like a hotel on a Friday morning, even dropping that big name publication won't get a manager on the phone. They will deny this, of course, but I think it's because everyone's gone surfing. The warm Indian Ocean is probably what you think of first when you conjure up Durban and its surrounding geography. But there's another image with deep associations for me. Sugarcane. Both of my sets of grandparents used to live in small towns near Derbs, so in my mind, the roads towards Durban look and smell like vast fields of yellow-green sugarcane. My dad used to drive up on the verge of the road and help himself to half a stalk or two, and I remember piling back into the car and gnawing on the pulpy sweet cane for the last hour of the drive to Granny's house. That's Um, excuse the pun, a sweet memory for me, but sugarcane is also very dark in my mind. Today I know about the sordid history of sugarcane farming in SA, the indentured labour of Indian immigrants, but even before I knew about that, in my child's mind, the sugar fields were the domain of cane rats the size of dachshunds, and snakes, the glossy mumbers with wide dark smiles, the kind that childhood phobias feed on. Also, often when we cruised past, with an ABBA cassette cheerily blaring, the air over the fields would be thick with smoke of burning sugarcane. In January 2018, 
near New Hanover in the Midlands, a small burning patch of sugarcane caught the attention of a farmer out walking with his grandson. It wasn't a controlled burn or even a big fire, just a smouldering patch in the otherwise green sea of cane. As he got closer, he realised that there was more to the fire. There were drag marks evident in the soil, the smell of petrol, and just a foot or two into the field was a horrific sight, a charred and twisted body of a very slight woman, one arm lifted above her head in what her mom will later describe as the dying swan pose. One hand remained untouched by the fire, her fingertips still glinting with sparkly nail polish. This is IAH episode 19, Snake in the Grass, The Murder of Siam Lee. Let's go backwards a little bit to meet Siam, long before she was found dumped and burned in the sugarcane. Siam was born on the 15th of April, 1997, to Carmen, Nan, Lee, and Howard Greenspan. Howard was a successful and wealthy South African businessman, and her mom, his lover. Nan, as she prefers to be known, was a sex worker, and I've struggled to find out more details about how ongoing their relationship was, but I know that when they were back in South Africa, they didn't live together, and Howard was actually murdered in his Cape Town penthouse, in 2005. While he was alive, he established a modest trust for Siam, and this helped Nan pay for her schooling at an upmarket private school in Durban. The word used to describe her most often seems to be kind. She was gentle and caring with both people and animals. She was a striking young woman too, with this long mane of thick dark curls What most of her school friends didn't know, however, was that Siam's payments from the trust had dried up halfway through her final year of school. She took on loads of jobs to help her mom keep their heads above water, including waitressing, working in retail, bartending, and more. During my research, I spoke to people who'd worked with Siam or employed her, and they talk about her as a bright light in the world, funny and sweet. She'd wanted to study teaching at one point, but there was no money for that anymore, and even with living frugally and working all the jobs she'd been taking on, she was struggling. She was also struggling with a choice that had been presented to her, because there was something she could do to bring in halfway decent dosh without needing a qualification, and that was to start offering sensual massage. I ummed and ahed about how much I wanted to talk about Siam's proximity to sex work. My own personal belief, as I've said multiple times now, is that sex work is work, and those who work in the space deserve the same protections and rights as any other worker, any other human. If you've been on this podcasting journey with me, you'll hear, you'll have heard me say that right up front in the beginning of this podcast. And if you're just tuning in, so to speak, you should know that that is my stance And if you disagree, this is probably not the podcast for you. Also, if you've listened to my interview with the representative from Sweat and Sisonke a few weeks ago, you'll be familiar with the idea that sex work includes a wide range of things. Depending on the definition you're working off, 
It includes massage, stripping, working in the formal and informal porn industries like running an OnlyFans account, as well as providing, of course, sex for money. And when we take away choice and consent, someone goes from being a sex worker to someone who has been sex trafficked. Critical to all of this is choice, and in an ideal world, having the right to define how and when and where you will work. As I've said before, Siam's mom Nan was a sex worker, and a decision was taken that Siam would begin working um, as a sensual masseuse. I say a decision was taken because we don't have insight into the ins and outs of that decision. I've also recently been told by reliable sources that Siam either never wanted to go in that route or was taking steps to try get out of that line of work. That's something I'm still investigating, and if you have direct knowledge of this case, and this aspect in particular, I'd really love to hear from you. The way a lot of media talk about this aspect of the story really upsets me, because what she did or didn't do for a living doesn't make her death in any way less tragic. The reporting, and worse, the Facebook comments from the self-appointed morality police, have done enough damage already. This long, long segue is to say that it has been widely reported that Siam was involved in sex work, and so I felt it necessary to address it. It also comes up in the actual unfolding of the story. But I don't think that it should contribute to the way that you view her, and now we can go ahead and get back to the story, safe in the knowledge that I've scared off the bigots who shouldn't be listening to IHH anyway. And there goes Scouty snoring in the background. Apologies for that. In October 2017, Siam meets a new massage client at her place of work, a house on Margaret Maytham Avenue in Durban North. This client is a man called Pilani Ntuli. Pilani was born on the 21st of April 1988, and his full name is Pilani Gebolonkosi Gift Ntuli. He was a 29-year-old businessman, who looked for all the world like a guy on the rise. He was an entrepreneur who had come from fairly humble beginnings, but had done quite well for himself and had bought into a few small businesses. He was described as a well-known figure in the petrochemical industry and was investing in renewables. He'd even bought a house for himself in Asagai, a suburb in West Durban, and he drove a Mercedes Viano. Pilani looked the part of an entrepreneur too. He was wearing sharp suits and those trendy thick-framed specs over wide-set eyes. In most pictures, he's grinning from ear to ear, the kind of smile that is disarming in its wideness. He seemed a charming and affluent guy, so when he asked to take Siam out on a date, she agreed. And they did have one disastrous date. When Siam came home from dinner, she tells her mom she will not be seeing Pilani again, describing him as creepy and strange. Pilani, however, was not going to take the no easily. He started calling her and driving past the house. On January 4th, 2018, in the late afternoon, Pilani drives that Viano down the long, tree-limed Margaret Maytham Avenue and turns into the driveway of Siam's place of work. At gunpoint, he forces Siam into his car and drives away, actually getting into a small accident with another car as he speeds away from the scene of the abduction. A case is opened with the police, 
and her mom and friends make appeals in traditional and social media for information and her safe return. Sadly, as we know, that was not to be. Having kept her hostage for a day and a night at his home in Askai, Pilani drove Siam out to that sugarcane field in the Midlands late on the 5th or in the early hours of the 6th. He had beat her with a blunt object, causing massive trauma to her head, and he doused her body in petrol and set her alight. Just a few hours later, she was found by that farmer, and the search would turn into a murder investigation. Private investigator Brad Nathanson was reportedly contracted by Siam's father's family when she went missing. He and a network of other private eyes, as well as the police, were all seeking that black Viano that had screeched away from the house that day. The driver who had collided with Pilani's car had given chase when Pilani didn't stop after the accident. Of course, he couldn't have known that Siam was in the car at the time, but in a moment of fury, he'd actually driven into the back of the retreating car causing some damage, and so one of the threads that the investigators started to pull was whether any insurance claims for that type of vehicle had been lodged, and this led them to a pretty stone cottage. There, behind the white-framed garage doors, they found the car and had it towed, and then they waited for Pilani to come home. On January 17th, both the private investigators and the cops are waiting when Pilani comes home from a short trip to Johannesburg, and he discovers that his car isn't in the garage where he left it. As he's digging for his phone, they approach the gate, guns in hand, and demand access before forcing Pilani to the ground and cuffing him. His arrest is processed the same day. A few days later, on the 22nd of January, Pilani appears in court for the first time, on multiple charges including assault, robbery, intimidation, kidnapping, rape, reckless and negligent driving, failing to stop and render assistance at an accident, fraud, murder, and unlawful possession of firearm and ammunition. They're gunning for him from all angles. During those early court appearances, Pilani tells the judge, Magistrate Mohammed Mutala, that he was attacked and assaulted by the guys who arrested him. He says he's been mistreated, his family verbally abused when they came to see him in the holding cells, and he requests a transfer. This is denied on the basis that he needed to be accessible to the investigators, but he does reprimand the cops, or at least tells them to stick to the letter of the law when it comes to Pilani's custody. Then in early February, he makes his second court appearance, and then the bail hearing starts in March, and this is when we first get a glimpse of the case against him. It's a long, drawn-out set of hearings, not unlike a mini-trial, and the judge and defense actually criticize the prosecutor for drawing it out for so long. But it's also in this process that we learn Pilani may have done this before, or at least there's a pattern of both controlling and abusive behavior being laid out, as well as sexual assault. In April, while the hearings continue, a 28-year-old former employee of Pilani's comes forward. She tries to open a case against him in Centurion in Gauteng, but she's told instead to write her statement out for it to be sent to the investigating officer, which she does. She also goes to the media, specifically the Sunday Tribune, with the allegation, and she tells how he lured her to Durban from Johannesburg with promises of work, picked her up from the airport, 
and then locks her into his home where he repeatedly raped her. When he leaves the house, this brave survivor manages to unscrew the burglar bars from the room where she'd been held and escape. She was too afraid, she says, to open a case against him. Instead, she returned to Johannesburg and cut off all ties. Also during the hearings, we learn that there were several charges against his name. Specifically, a former fiancé, Lucky Mtembu, opened a case against Palani in 2015, alleging that he had tried to kill her and that he'd intimidated her and her family. This report, it seems, went nowhere, even after Lucky wrote to the then police minister, Fakila Mbulula, in 2017 to ask why the case was not being pursued. In 2016, that's the year between his ex-pressing charges and her letter to the minister, another woman brings a charge of rape and kidnapping against him. There's more detail to this particular thread, but most of it is untested in court, so please bear that in mind when I tell you this. Lucky describes a campaign of harassment that he carried out against her and some truly disturbing behaviour. Lucky's mother died in 2015 in a particularly gruesome and unsolved crime, and Pilani's response to this was to send texts to the family in which he tells them that the killer will never be found. Unsurprisingly, Lucky has suspicions that he had been involved somehow, and the family even hired a PI to follow Pilani from time to time. But they didn't turn up anything incriminating, before the family elected to stop the surveillance. Lucky's case, as I said, went nowhere in the hands of the police, and this is beginning to have echoes of the Pendile Joseph and Tunguana case for me. That's the Axeman from two episodes ago. I have been criticised for giving police a hard time, and I completely acknowledge the difficulties that they face. They are overworked and underpaid, and operating in scary circumstances. But it's very hard to not be utterly infuriated when you hear case after case like this. Pilani, for his part, also brings accusations to court, including an account of what sounds like torture at the hands of the PI involved in his arrest. Now, I wouldn't bet against some rough-handedness on the part of the investigators. This was a case that had really captured South Africa and made a lot of people very angry. But I am also hesitant to put too much stock in what Pilani has to say here, what with him basically being a smiling snake in a suit. His behavior in court is bizarre at points. He starts arriving on crutches and appears, in the words of some media, frail and sickly. But he also laughs out loud when the state prosecutor talks about him killing Siam in his home. While being questioned about his business and family, he shouts at the prosecutor saying, go ahead with your propaganda. And this behavior earns him censure from the judge. But when these hearings eventually wrap up, he is granted bail of 40,000 rand and sent to reside with his mother in Pietermaritzburg while both sides prepare for a trial which is set to begin in November of 2018. Only when this gets underway do we start to hear the state's version of what really happened to Siam. And it's a lot, so please feel free to skip ahead, maybe 30 seconds to a minute, if you don't feel up to hearing this bit. 
The state's indictment alleges that after Pilani got Siam to his home, he handcuffed or tied her to the balustrade of some steps and then raped her repeatedly before sometime that night or in the early hours of the next morning strangling her. They also believe that he then put a blanket over her and struck her with a hammer. He must have done so many, many times because of the damage caused, including the fact that her teeth weren't present in the skull when she's found. The next day, he drives her body out into that sugarcane field in New Hanover and sets her alight. Although the cause of death appears to be hemorrhage from her head injuries, the indictment notes that burns on the body too. Over 90% of her body was burned. Pilani's contribution that month was to ask for his bail conditions to be reduced. They were not. The case was postponed to early 2019, and there is another series of postponements, a situation that I'm learning now is typical or par for the course in our justice system. God alone knows how long the case would actually have taken, but in the end it doesn't come to that, because on the 21st of June 2019, Pilani and Tuli died, apparently as a result of skin cancer. His passing was met with outrage and disbelief from Siam's mother, friends and other supporters who never got to see real justice in this case. In fact, the timing of his passing was considered by many to be so suspicious that the idea that he had faked his own death to escape justice was seriously regarded by the court. This was not helped by the fact that his death certificate looked dodgy as fuck. In the end, a representative of Home Affairs was required to attend court and attest to the fact that the red flags on that document were the result of a printing error and not an attempt to mislead anyone. They further compared his fingerprints to be certain of the identity of the body. It was Pilani and Tuli were told. The state accepted this and the case was struck off the court roll in the end. I've sat with this bit for a while because I really feel that knee-jerk skepticism too. It seems like it would be alarmingly easy to bribe a morgue attendant and a home affairs officer into looking the other way or more, and then to slither off to Mozambique or somewhere beyond our borders. On the balance of probability though, I think Pilani did in fact die as the state claims in June 2019 never really facing the full weight of his crimes, and leaving the case sort of unended, closure perhaps just out of reach. In just over a month's time, it will be four years since we lost Siam, and from the people I've been speaking to who knew her, she has not faded in their memories. They still want more answers. They want to know why she wasn't able to access more help when she needed it, why the warnings about Pilani were unheeded, and I think they deserve answers. If you want to share something you know about this case, or even just to share a memory of Siam, please get in touch with me on IHH at readyfreddypod.com. That's IHH at R-E-A-D-Y-F-R-E-D-D-I-E pod.com. I'm going to play out today with a promo for another podcast. This is the OG South African true crime podcast, presented, researched, masterminded by Nicole Engelbrecht. It's called True Crime South Africa. 
I believe that we have a lot of overlap in audience. But if you haven't listened to Nicole's show, here she is to tell you a little bit about it. Check it out because she's fantastic. South Africa, a country whose spectacular beauty and dynamic people are known the world over. But there's another side to our country, and one that is rarely discussed in the detail it deserves. Join me, Nicole Engelbrecht, on True Crime South Africa, South Africa's first victim-focused true crime podcast, as we go beyond the headlines focus on the victims, and explore some of South Africa's most heinous, violent crimes. True Crime South Africa is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of IWH was researched with help from Samantha Render and written and presented by myself, Kate Thompson-Davey. It Happened Here is a Ready Freddy production. Mm-hmm.